Let's turn again to the 13th chapter of Matthew. And we want to learn from our Lord these lessons from life that he picked up simply from observations about nature. The Lord was uh, a very keen observer of of life around him, nature and things, and uh, he learned from it. He uh, observed the way birds behave and something of the structure and beauty of flowers. And from these simple things, he drew lessons for life. I remember years ago hearing Howard Hendricks tell of a time he was sitting next to Donald J. Barnhouse on a park bench. And uh, as they were talking, some birds were hopping around on the grass, picking up seeds. And uh, Barnhouse stopped right in the middle of a sentence and put his hand up and took a little card out of his pocket and began to write furiously. And, and then he stuck the pocket, the card back into his pocket and went on with his conversation and didn't explain what, what he had done. But Howard said he knew one of these days that illustration would turn up in one of Dr. Barnhouse's books because he learned lessons from life. Now, that's, uh, that's the way the, le- the Lord taught so frequently. Just took simple, homely observations about life and turned them into lessons for living. And that's what we've been seeing in Matthew 13 in these parables. Now, there are eight parables, I believe, in Matthew 13. Some would say seven, but I think uh, Jesus saying in verse 53 and following, is also uh, a parable. We've looked at uh, two of them, the two which our Lord interpreted for us. That uh, makes it easy for us. The Lord told us the meaning of those two. From this point on, with the exception of the parable of the dragnet, we're on our own. However, the Lord said, uh, those who have ears will hear, so hopefully we have ears that are open and listening, hearts that are open, and we can understand the meaning and the message of these parables. The first two that we want to look at this morning are found in verses 31 through 33, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all seeds, but when it is full grown, It is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, there are some who read this parable and say, The Lord uh, blundered. The Lord made a mistake. The mustard seed is not the smallest of all the seeds. There are uh, smaller seeds. Dill seeds, for example, are much smaller. He didn't know his botany. It was an error. But... uh, The Lord is simply using a proverbial expression. Mustard seed was, proverbially, the smallest seed of all the other seeds. That sort of expression occurs frequently in Jewish literature. They describe a thing as smaller than a mustard seed. It's much like some of our popular sayings. A thing is uh, dry as a gourd or someone is blind as a bat. Those are simply popular parlance. And there may be drier things or blinder things. But uh, in popular speech, those things become proverbial. Now, that's what Jesus is doing. Because in, in his day, the idea of a mustard seed was that of a very small thing. And uh, it's a very small thing that grows into a very large bush, virtually a tree. Small seed is planted in the ground. 
and it becomes larger than any other garden plant, any other vegetable. Now, the Lord is not exaggerating. This is not inordinate growth. He's not describing distortion. This is true to life. In Palestine, mustard trees grow to be 8 to 10 feet tall. They get quite large. So large, they actually can support uh, uh, nesting birds, as Jesus describes for us here. Now, the birds are in the story simply to enhance the picture. The Lord takes words in hand. This is a painter takes a, a brush in hand and paints a picture for us. The birds are not symbolic of evil agents. Some would make them so, because in the first parable, uh, the birds which snatch the seed from the soil are identified there as satanic agents. But here, they're simply in the picture to, uh, to enhance it a bit, to make it more colorful. If you notice from the New American Standard Bible, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, a quotation from Daniel 4, where the writer describes Bab uh, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, as a great tree that reaches up to heaven. It can be seen, Daniel says, or the interpreting angel says, from the ends of the earth, putting out uh, great branches with luxuriant foliage. It shelters animals underneath, and the birds nest in its branches. And it's this statement that Jesus picks up in quotes here in, in this parable. He's simply describing for us a big tree. It starts very small, and it becomes very big. That's, that's the point of the parable. Now, what does Jesus mean? Well, obviously, he's describing the growth of the kingdom. He tells us that the kingdom is like this. It's like a mustard seed, which is very small, and it grows to be very large. And he was thinking of the humble origin of the gospel. Now, this, you'll note, is a parable that was given to the crowd, to the multitude, not merely to the disciples. And it was an incentive to those within the kingdom who might be tempted, or those within his audience who might be tempted to turn away from the Lord, to see the significance of this humble beginning. Because Jesus did not at all come as they expected. They expected a Messiah who would bring in the kingdom with a vengeance. He would come and in one stroke he would sweep away evil and establish a universal kingdom. But the Lord didn't come like that. And that's why people were turning away from him. They were disillusioned. They were disappointed. He wasn't so what they expected at all. He was. He came uh, in a very quiet way. He uh, uh, began his ministry in a kind of cultural backwater, an economically depressed company, a country very much like some of the third world countries today. That from which you wouldn't expect uh, any great kingdom to arise. You wouldn't expect uh, some of the, the African, the new emerging African nations to become a great empire, for example. But that's where Jesus began, in Palestine. He wasn't trained for a political career. He didn't have uh, a deep understanding of economic or political theory. Uh, his disciples were a sort of ragtag bunch. People were turning away from his ministry in large numbers. His following was diminishing. He had already antagonized all of the national leadership that you would expect to be supportive of, of any political intentions that he had. 
He had virtually turned off the entire nation. And now people were leaving. He wasn't what they expected. But Jesus says, don't be disturbed. Big things have small beginnings. So, though the gospel may appear small and insignificant now, God has a great worldwide purpose for his kingdom, which will be affected. God's not going to be frustrated. He's not going to be thwarted. He will accomplish the work that he's begun. And history has borne that out. On the day of Pentecost, that uh, tree began to grow, and it spread its branches out throughout the Roman Empire. And by the 4th century, after Christ's death, the gospel had virtually reached to the ends of the Roman Empire. Augustine, who lived at that time, said that we who took vengeance on Christians because of our idols have now taken vengeance on our idols because of Christ. See, the world was turned upside down. It was turned around. Slavery was eradicated at that time, largely through the effect of the gospel. The truth began to reach out and grip people's hearts. Now, that should be an encouragement to us because a lot of us are in situations that seem very insignificant. You may be the only Christian in your office or in your neighborhood, and people may not, at this point, be very responsive to you and what you have to say. But what's true on a, on a universal scale is true in your office. Very often, small, insignificant beginnings are simply a foretaste of the, of the great thing that God has in mind for your area of influence. So don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Don't back down. Don't withhold your witness because you feel insignificant. Great things come from small beginnings. A friend of my son Brian wrote a few uh, months back to tell us that in his in an anthropology class at Cal, the professor asked the question, who in this class believes in theistic creationism? Large class, freshman class, probably 500 people in the class. And he says, who in this class believes in theistic uh, creationism? And Dave was the only person to raise his hand in the entire class. Now that gets discouraging. And you may be the only Christian in your office. But the Lord says that's like planting a little seed. It's going to grow. There's power in the seed. There's life in the seed. So don't get discouraged. Don't back off. Don't withhold your proclamation of the truth. Great things come from very humble beginnings. Now that's the point of the first parable here. Now the second is very similar to it. In fact, the two are complementary. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. This is a picture taken right out of uh, the uh, kitchen in the ancient world. Women uh, frequently needed that much uh, meal to make dough. That was the proverbial amount prepared for a large meal. In at least three places in the Old Testament, references made to women preparing or someone else preparing three measures of meal. The three measures doesn't signify anything. It simply indicates a large amount 
of meal, the amount that any woman would normally prepare for a large family. The woman herself doesn't signify anything other than the fact that she's a woman. Because uh, that's the, the individual you would expect to be preparing meals. Uh, men in the ancient world didn't cook meals, didn't prepare meals. Women did. So uh, this is women's work. So you would expect to find a woman in the kitchen. She uh, does not signify evil in this context. Now some would say, yes, she does. She's a picture of the apostate church. Uh, she's a picture of evil. Now, it is true that in some places in the New Testament, in Revelation 17, for instance, evil is personified as a woman. In Revelation 17, Babylonianism, this uh, wicked uh, church religious system that begins to infiltrate the true church, is, is pictured there as a woman. And uh, in the Old Testament, in Zechariah 5, Zechariah sees a, a large basket, an ephah, and a woman pops out of the basket. And he says, what's that? And the angel says, that's wickedness. And they push her back in the basket, and they put a big lead lid over the top to keep her from popping out again, you see. And in at least those cases, women are, are portrayed as evil. But it will be comforting to you women to know that that's not always true in the New Testament. It's not a universal uh, symbol, a consistent symbol used in that way. In Revelation 12, for instance, Israel, God's people, is portrayed as a woman who gives birth to the Christ child. And um, in Luke 15, one of the parables which Jesus told, it's the woman who goes out searching for the coin that's lost, and she, in that context, uh, portrays Christ, the Lord himself, who's out seeking the lost. So in this context, it's not uh, there's nothing that compels us to assume that the woman signifies evil. Just a woman, that's all. The person you would expect to find in the kitchen preparing a meal. What then is the leaven? Now that's the tough one. What is the leaven? This woman hides leaven in a large mass of dough, and eventually the entire mass is infiltrated, affected by the leaven. Well, leaven, of course, is simply yeast. And uh, it is true that in both the Old and New Testament, leaven is frequently associated with evil. Um, for example, in the sacrifices that Israel offered, they were to be offered without leaven as a symbol of their separation from the evil that characterized their sojourn in, in Egypt. They had been redeemed from all of that, so the sacrifices were unleavened as a reminder that they were to have nothing to do with the, with the evil that they left uh, behind. And in the New Testament, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul himself refers to a man in the church who was causing a great deal of trouble and describes him as like leaven that needs to be taken out unless, uh, and, if, and if not, then the leaven would leaven the entire lump. And then in Galatians 5, Paul describes heresy in the church that way. It's like leaven that leavens the entire lump. And even Jesus, in one case, in Luke 12, says to the disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So that generally throughout the Old and New Testament, leaven is associated with evil. 
But not always. Not always. In the Old Testament, for instance, there is at least one sacrifice, the wave offering, that was offered with leaven. In Leviticus 23, that sacrifice is described. And uh, if leaven consistently symbolized evil, it would be highly unlikely that God would permit leaven to be introduced into any sacrifice because evil is never condoned by God under any, any form, in any form. Um, the Jews of Jesus' day, in their writing, frequently referred to leaven not as a symbol of evil, but as a symbol of good. And one of the early church fathers, the man named Ignatius, who actually lived at the same time the apostles lived, in one of his writings says, Take into you the leaven which is Christ. So in the ancient world, the symbol of leaven was not always associated with, with evil. Not always. Sometimes. But not always. Now I think what we have to do is understand the properties of leaven. That's the important thing. Leaven, as you know, is pervasive. You put it into a, you put a small amount into a large mass, and in a period of time, it will pervade the entire mass. It will penetrate in, in quiet, hidden, unseen, undetected ways until the entire mass is leaven. And as such, it's a very apt metaphor for evil. That's the way evil uh, acts. That's what it does. And therefore, when Jesus describes hypocrisy as leaven, it's a very apt figure. That's the way hypocrisy encroaches upon us. You see? A little cover-up soon begins to pervade our entire being. Maybe all we do is paste on a smile when we're really hurting inside. But see, that's hypocrisy. We're acting contrary to the truth. And that little bit of Leaven soon leavens the whole lump. So we find ourselves acting hypocritically in other other areas. I remember a poster I saw once in an engineering lab at, uh, at Stanford. It showed a an engineer, kind of a snaggletooth young man, grasping a, a diploma under his arm. And the caption underneath said, Five years ago, I couldn't even spell engineer, I-N-J-U-N-E-E-R, and now I are one. Well, that's the way with hypocrisy. Uh, all of a sudden we are hypocritical in many areas of our life because you see that's how all, that's how evil pervades our being. Filters through our life in quiet, undetected ways. And I think, you see, when Jesus or the, the apostles use the figure of leaven, they're thinking primarily of the means by which evil affects us, not evil itself. It's also, by the way, a very apt simile for the way the gospel pervades our being. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. The way the gospel infiltrates society. You can think back on your own experience. When you first came to the Lord in that little bit of leaven, a little bit of gospel, a little bit of truth, was hidden in your spirit. And then it began to pervade your life quietly almost undetected in the beginning. Perhaps no one in your office or your family knew that you're giving your heart to the Lord, but you begin to change. 
You began to be more sensitive to people around you and center on their interests instead of, of your own. And you stopped treating your secretary like a stick of furniture. And she became a person to you. And you, you became sensitive to her needs. And, and things began to change around your business, the way you treated your competitors, even. And uh, the way you treated your in-laws, they were no longer outlaws to you. You began to love them and, and care for them, you see. And, and little by little, the truth began to invade every, every nook and cranny of your life. And people began to wonder, what, what happened to you? Let me get in on it. What's happening here? And you were able to share the truth of the gospel with them. And a little bit of gospel, a little truth was implanted in their life, and it began to change them. You see, that's how the gospel moves. It, as Donald McGavern explains, it's through people movement. Through one family member imparting truth to another. One student to another. One laborer to another. One child to another. It just moves naturally through lines of relationships, through families and social groups and organizations until it becomes, like leaven, the whole mass of humanity is affected by it. You see, that's what I believe Jesus is talking about here. Now, what can we learn from these two parables? Well, the first is that the coming of our Lord Jesus' kingdom is certain. It's not going to be frustrated. It won't be thwarted. It's inexorable. It's powerful. And though it may have very humble beginnings, it's going to accomplish the work that God has set out to do. You can't tie God's hand. You may yourself or I may myself miss out on what God is doing, but God himself will not be frustrated. I've been reading a, a book by Dave Her Herbert King, who's a missions professor at... Uh, at Trinity Seminary, and I've been greatly impressed by this book. The substance of it is that though Christian mission is changing, the winds of change are blowing, the Christian mission will never be frustrated. The rise of nationalism, the rejection of American missionaries by many countries where formerly they've had, uh, they've had strong ministries, that shouldn't frustrate us because God is at work. And he says this, We do well to remember that the Christian mission is God's mission, not ours. The mandate given to us by our Lord in the Great Commission is to continue to the end of the world. The early church expected the end of the world to, to occur in their time, but 2,000 years have come and gone, and the church is still here. When Jesus Christ gave his apostles their marching orders, he pulled no punches, he painted no rosy pictures, he promised neither immediate victory nor universal nor immediate universal success. Rather, he spoke of opposition and persecution. He warned them that they would be hated of all men. The worldwide missionary enterprise was to be fraught with all kinds of difficulties and dangers. The messengers of the cross would be hunted and hounded from pillar to post. They would be scourged by the Jews and flogged by the Romans. Indeed, some of them would lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. But the mandate would never be rescinded, nor the mission aborted. If the disciples were persecuted in one city, they were not to throw in the towel. They were to move on to the next. 
Neither the mischief of men nor the machinations of the devil were to deter them. They were taught to believe that they were engaged in a holy war with an implacable foe. Casualties would occur and reverses come, but they were to press on in full confidence that the captain of our salvation would be with them to the end of the age. Many battles would be lost, but the war would be won. About that, there was no doubt. We may lose a few battles, but we're fighting a war that's already won. And therefore, let's don't be intimidated. Let's don't shrink. Let's speak out. And know that God will enlarge his kingdom. The second thing we learn from these two parables is the means by which the gospel reaches out to the world. The first parable, the parable of the mustard tree, emphasizes the extensive aspect of the kingdom, its size, its enlargement. The second parable emphasizes the intensive uh, aspect of the gospel. It pervades everything. It catches on when we catch on. When we begin to act according to the truth, people begin to see changes in our lives. Then they respond to it and they, and they want to know what's going on. They want to get in on it. They want to be a part of it. And the gospel begins to flow through these lines of relationship that, we, that we've established. Our friends, our neighbors people we play racquetball with, people we work next to, the man at the, at the desk or, or the workbench next to us. That's how the gospel moves. That means, therefore, we individually and as a body need to be responsive to the Word. The seed that's been implanted in our life. The gospel as it's typified by leaven. Let it do its work. Let it begin to change you and me. Let's respond to it. Let's put away the, the bitterness and the jealousy and the defensiveness and the hostility and the things that, that often characterize us that put people away. Now I want to say something, and this is hard, hard for me, but I need to say it. Just this past week, I was really saddened by hearing on a couple of occasions that the kind of bitterness that tore this body apart three years ago is being expressed again. Basically, it's um, uneasiness on the part of people about some of the decisions that the elders have made. Now, let me say something about elders. We're just men, very fallible men. And we make mistakes. We'll always make mistakes. But... Our intention is to find God's will for this body of believers and follow it out to the end, whatever it costs. That's our purpose. And yet what we've discovered is that there's an undercurrent, a very small undercurrent, but nevertheless it's there, of resistance, unhappiness, and in some cases real bitterness. And in one case that I know, someone not only insisted that they were not going to cooperate, with the decision that the elders made, but they were encouraging others not to cooperate as well. Now, I simply share that as one member of, of this body. I, as an elder, have no right to demand anything. Only the apostles can demand. All I can urge is that we, as individuals, judge our own hearts. And if there is a spirit of bitterness and criticism 
then we need to judge it and put it away because that's the thing that destroyed this body once before and we must not permit it to happen again. And when I say must not, I'm not standing here as an elder saying you must not. I'm saying we individually must deal with it. Because you see, evil like leaven will destroy us as a body. But righteousness like leaven will produce the kind of display of love and unity, concern and care for each other that will draw men to Christ. We're not playing for nickels and dimes. This is serious business. God left us in this world for a purpose. That's to make visible the invisible Christ wherever we go. And anything we do that deters, that deters that expression of the character of Christ, we have to deal severely with in our own spirit. And you judge it and put it away. Now, I don't know where all of this emanates from. It doesn't matter to me, but it's there. And we really need to take seriously the Lord's words. A little leaven can leaven the whole lump. The question is, what is it that's leavening them? Is it criticism and bitterness, or is it love and righteousness and truth? Now, having said that, I'd like to move on. Let's uh, look at the next parable, verses 44 and following. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man, a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here again, we have two parallel parables. They're very similar. They complement each other. I'm not saying the same thing twice. Each has a little different emphasis. In both cases, there is a treasured object. In both cases, there's someone who finds it, but there is a difference. Now, the first parable, again, is true to life. They, men very often hid their treasures in the field. They didn't have banks or places to deposit their wealth, and so they would dig a hole in the field and, and, uh, and leave it there in the hope that no one would discover it. Apparently, this man either forgot where he, uh, where he hid it and put his X on the right spot in the map, or he died and uh, didn't tell his, his heirs where the treasure was, and so it remained hidden in the field. And this day laborer is working the field. It's not his field. He's probably a, just a farmhand. And as he plows with his ox, the plow turns up a piece of sod, and underneath is this fabulous treasure. And it covers it over, and he goes out and hawks everything that he has to buy this field because he knows the treasure is worth it. Now, if that sounds sneaky and scurrilous to you, uh, it's not. That's the sort of thing that was frequently done. According to Roman and Jewish law, the, uh, the ordinances regarding lost money were basically finders, keepers, losers, weepers. If you found, uh, you found uh, gold, it was yours. And so this man uh, wasn't doing anything uh, illegal. If he covers it over, tells no one about it, goes out and hawks everything that he had to buy this treasure because it's worth it. He'd give anything for it. The second man is uh, is a big businessman. He's a merchant. And he scours the world looking for one great uh, pearl, one fine pearl. Pearls were a prized possession in those days. The most valuable of any possession. 
And this man goes out looking, searching. He's on a quest. He looks until he finds this pearl and then he sells everything. The, uh, the word all here is neuter. The gender of the word pearl is feminine. The implication is not that he merely sells his pearls in order to buy this other pearl, but he sells everything he has. All of his property, his house, his possessions, automobile, everything to go buy this one pearl of great price. Because again, it is worth it. Worth any cost. Now the distinguishing mark between these two parables is the idea of quest. In the first case, the man simply happens upon the treasure. He stumbles on it. He's like uh, many people that you and I know who simply go through life without a worry in their head. They're not particularly bothered or pressured by anything. They don't have any particular need. It's wrong for us to assume that everyone in the world feels a deep need for the gospel. They don't. Life has treated them well. Life does, over the years, have a way of, of teaching us that we need something more than what we can provide. But there are many people at one stage or another in their life who are just very happy and satisfied and at peace with everything. And uh, like this man, they stumble upon the treasure, which is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And they say, aha, that's what I need. And they respond to it. They sell out in order to purchase it. Others are involved in a quest. And you and I know them. There are people that are restlessly searching for truth. They're looking everywhere to find the meaning to life, the key that will unlock their life and give it substance. And uh, when this person finds the truth, he finds the pearl. He sells out to buy it. By the way, one of the ways you can tell if a person is sincerely looking for truth is the reaction to our Lord Jesus. If they say, I'm looking for truth, and they're rejecting, it's an indication that they aren't really looking for truth. Because he is truth. And if a man's heart is open, and he finds Jesus Christ, he'll know that's the truth, and he'll respond to it. And that's what this man does. He finds the pearl which is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus, the gospel, the good news. And he responds to it. He sells out everything in order to gain. And the question that I have to ask myself and ask you is, have we? Is the gospel that sort of treasured, precious possession to us? Is the Lord Jesus worth giving up anything for? Are, are, are there other things? in the way. Maybe it's a position that we want to attain. And we think, well, when I get there, then I'll give the Lord the time of day. Or maybe it's a person that we love. And we know the relationship is not good. And we don't want to give it up. We know that's what's keeping us from, from giving our entire being to the Lord Jesus. But we're unwilling to give it up. We won't sell out. And that's what the Lord is calling us to do. Assess our lives, not only in the beginning, our immediate reaction to the Lord Jesus when we first hear the gospel, and on through our life, are we willing to sell out anything, give up anything for Him because He's worth it? I've mentioned before, I think to the men on Wednesday morning, a friend of mine who was mustered out of a doctoral program in a 
school on the West Coast, because of his Christian bias, he's in, in a particular field of studies where his Christian beliefs uh, simply made him unacceptable to this department. And so he's gone through four years of graduate school, and the committee refused to accept him for his doctoral exams, and he was turned out. And when he received word, he, as he describes it, what he first pictured in his mind was $20,000 in four years taking, taking wings. And then the next thing that flooded into his mind was the word of the chorus. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches or untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords, be it a Ph.D. or $20,000 or anything else. I won't sell out. And you see, that's, that's what the Lord is saying. Our Lord is the only thing worth selling out for. Nothing else is. As Jim Elliott put it, young martyr who went to the Aka Indians to proclaim the gospel to them, murdered. As he put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now finally, this morning, the parable of the dragnet. Boy, time has really gotten away from us. I didn't realize it was this late. I think I'll just quit. That's a good place to quit. <laughs> Frustrating, but uh, we'll come back to it later. Well, let's just examine our hearts this morning. What is the Lord to you? Is he a precious thing? Or something to be discarded for something else that's more precious? Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father that you have revealed to us in these simple stories, these truths. We're grateful that, that you've told us the truth. And we want to respond to it with obedient hearts. We ask that, uh, that we would see you as the valuable thing that you really are. A tribute to you, the worth that the Father himself attributes to you. And that we would say, you're, you're our prize. You're the one that we need above all things. Teach us that truth, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.